Here's the mantra, here's the speech, here's the opening line. You've heard me say it every week if you've been here, and I'm going to keep saying it because I want you to burn it into your brain. If you are alive in Christ, you are different, and there's no getting around it. God's going to take hold of you. God's going to change you. God's going to do a work in you. He is going to shape you, morph you, form you, and transform you into something that you currently are not, into a better version of yourself, into something God has always intended you to be, into more than the carbon copy existence that we who call ourselves human beings walk around in some zombie-like state, half spiritual dead. God is looking to get a hold of you and change you and make you different in some kind of way. And if you are in Christ and he is alive in you, this is flat out pure inevitability. There's no getting around it. And if you're here today, And if you are someone who's put your faith in Christ and Christ is in you, you may have had these times where you see other people, friends, family, you name it, just people in the world today, and you're like, why don't I quite fit in? Why why do we think so differently? Why is it when it comes to these these topics or issues or these values that, that we have, we just don't see eye to eye? Well, I'll tell you why because God is shaping you into something different. And if you're here today and you don't call yourself a Christian, or regardless of what labels we want to put on this, you aren't someone who has put your faith in Christ. You don't seek him first in your life. And you've had these times of wondering, like, why are these Christian people so weird? why would anyone ever think that? Why would anyone ever act like that? Why do they value stuff like this? Maybe you have a spouse. Maybe you have parents or a kid who have come to Christ in some kind of way and it's kind of scaring you a little bit because they just feel like there's something different going on. Well, this is the reason why. You don't have to be afraid because God is doing something in their life that's shaping them and molding them. Now, forever, Christians have looked to the Bible as a guide for that different kind of thing that's happening. Looking to the Bible as a way to, to explain what's happening, why it's happening, and how to put it into play. And within the Bible, they've often looked at a very specific set of rules called the Ten Commandments, if you will. But so much more than rules, really a table of context to a whole different body of ethic. Ten ideas about how God is shaping a different value set within us and the different value set he is calling us to as well. Now, to date, we have hit four of them. Today, we come to big number five. And here it is. You shall not murder. Put it on your lips with me. You shall not murder. Can we just agree off the bat? Let's not do that, okay? Can we, can we follow this one here today? Okay. That alone, I think, would be a victory in this world. You shall not murder. Older translations will say you shall not kill. Murder is better. And murder is better not only because it's a distinct and separate word, but because you can look throughout the Bible and under select certain circumstances, God does indeed not only allow, but even mandate killing. 
I think of things in the Old Testament like capital punishment in certain examples or the conquest of Canaan or other things like that. But make no mistake, even though murder is better and even though God does give allowance for killing in certain circumstances, it should never delude us into thinking that killing is good. God certainly allows killing as a lesser of two evils, if you will, but none of it should, should ever lead us to the conclusion that killing is fundamentally good. Because when you kill a human being, you are striking at the very image of God himself. There's this interesting passage. It comes early in the Bible, Genesis chapter 9. I'm just going to read it to you here quickly today. The scene is that that flood has just kind of abetted, you know, like the Noah's Ark flood that we have going on, right? And all humanity has been wiped out. It's like God's kind of giant reset button on the world, if you will. And now that Noah and his family are coming off the ark, God says something to them. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. That there's something unique and special about every human being. And certainly like the snowflake analogy where, you know, two of us are alike. Yeah, I get that. But something more I'm talking about that every human being bears the image of God, including the bad ones, including the ones we don't like, including the ones that hate God, reject God, refuse God, rebel against God. Every human being bears the image of God, and therefore every human being is sacred and holy and special. And the life that they carry is a sacred thing. And any time, for any reason, that life is snuffed out. It's the loss of something very holy in this world. And murder strikes at the heart of that. You shall not murder behind these simple, self-evident words is this deeper field of vision where God is inviting us to look at everyone around us, regardless of what side of a national border that they live on, regardless of what they value or don't value, Regardless of the course of actions in their life and the good or evil they have wrought on others, God invites us to look at them and say, this is someone who is made in his image. And that alone needs to be enough for me to see them as someone holy, sacred, and special. Are you with me? And of course, that's where it feels like it goes off the rails because people don't feel that holy, sacred, and special, do they? Especially people we don't like. Now, if this command would just kind of camp out at you shall not murder, I think we could leave here easy enough today. But see, 
Jesus likes to take these commands and amp them up. He likes to take these commands and fill them out. Rather, he likes to take these commands and get to the heart and soul of what they seek to represent. And so when Jesus is teaching on the law of God, he comes to this command of murder, and I want to share with you what he says. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Jesus will say, you shall not murder, right? And of course, by extension, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But then he has to add this. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will also be subject to judgment. It's fascinating that the same penalty reserved for murder, Jesus says, also applies to anyone who is even angry with his brother or sister. And certainly I think that should be applied literally because who infuriates us more than anyone in our life than our siblings? But let's not restrict it there because I don't think Jesus restricts it there. I think by this phrase, he is looking to indicate those who share in the family of God together or maybe even so far, anyone who we can call brothers and sisters of the human race. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry, with another child of God, with another human being. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, you're flirting with that same idea of murder too. He goes on a little bit more and he says this, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, don't you love learning foreign swear words? <laughs> Jesus loves sharing them. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. I would love to know the nuance of what that word meant to those people back then. But I would encourage you, whoever you're angry with today, the Sanhedrin isn't around, maybe say that to them. <laughs> but he goes on to say, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire's of hell. Now, I've called people a lot worse than you fool. How about you? And Jesus has some very sobering words there because what he's doing is he's, he's unveiling and getting at the heart of that which motivates murder. Murder tends to be one of those kinds of things where you're like, I could never do that. That would never be me. How could anyone ever come to that place until you get angry with someone? And then it starts to come into sharp relief. Now, there's a rabbinic tradition that when God gave the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, that they would mirror each other, so to speak. That in this tradition, God would list half the commandments over here and list the other commandments over here on the other side. And if you were to fold them together like a book, they would almost kind of like, you know, like, Link up, marry each other, that one would reflect the other. Now, this is a tradition, of course, but there's something pretty cool in this that I'm going to share with you today. In Jewish tradition, the first commandment is this. I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of slavery. You might think it would be, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, okay, I'm with you, but not according to the Talmud. According to the Talmud, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. And rabbis would say that that command mirrors this command that you find at the top of the second tablet, you shall not murder. What is the link? Well, what God invites us to see in the, quote, first commandment is that he is not us, we are not him, that God is distinctly other. I am the Lord your God, he says. I am different than you. And because I am different than you, I have a being unto myself that is not dependent on you, enmeshed with you, intertwined with you, or in service to you. I am separate and other. I am the Lord your God, which means I will have my own values which means I will have my own likes and dislikes, which means I will have my own way of doing things, which means I will have my own agenda, which means you're not going to like me very much sometimes. Because anytime someone values something different than what we value, has a different agenda than what we have, or is going in a different direction than is, shall we say, beneficial to us, it kind of takes us off. Would you agree? The first commandment, God saying, I am different than you. How does this parallel murder? Because everyone who is around you is different than you too. They do not exist for your betterment. They do not exist for your agenda. They do not exist to lift you up. They do not exist to do your bidding. They do not exist for your purpose and pleasure. In fact, they might have an agenda. They might have values. They might have likes and dislikes. They might have a way of going that actually countermines your values and agenda. And it's like God saying, get over it. Because they don't exist for you. But man, doesn't it infuriate you? Doesn't it absolutely infuriate you when you come across a human being who seems by their very existence to undermine that which is important to you? Someone who seeks to counter that which you do. Someone who values something so distinct from you that for every time you push, they seem to pull, right? They vote this way, you vote that way. They advocate for this, you, they, you advocate for that. You want this, they want that. You organize people towards this, they organize people towards that. Almost as though you are doing this in life. You know what would be wonderful? If those people would just go away. Sometimes it's a spouse, sometimes it's a, a sibling, a brother or a sister, literally. Sometimes it's, a, it's parents, sometimes it's a coworker, sometimes it's a boss, sometimes it's a person in the church, sometimes it's a person in your country, sometimes it's a person in another country. But wouldn't life be easier if the people who disagree with us would just simply disappear? If they would just simply cease to be a threat, cease to be an issue? cease to be something I have to deal with. Wouldn't it be easier if they just go away? I think it would be. Welcome to murder. 
knew this pastor. Actually, uh, we'll call him a bishop, if you will. He oversaw a large section of churches. He worked a lot with churches that were facing a lot of conflict and dysfunction. And with a dark, wry sense of humor, I remember he would say this every now and then. You know what that church needs is just a couple of funerals. And he is so right. Isn't he? You see what I mean? You shall not murder. But you shall not murder is so much more than you shall not murder. It roots itself in realizing that every human being, no matter how much you love or hate them, disagree with them, or whatever the case may be, is a child of God made in his image who does not exist for your plan or purpose in this world. And I think the sooner we come to resolution with that idea, the less we get angry. And the sooner we start to realize what Jesus is getting at here when he links the two. You should not murder. Treat them as holy other. But it doesn't even stop there. Because when you realize that someone is a child of God, someone is made in your image, it's not just enough to talk about what we shouldn't do for them because Jesus' teachings are also filled about what we should do for them as well. Now, Martin Luther, who wrote these like guides on the Ten Commandments way back when, has some great ways of explaining this. And I want to share the way that he explains the Fifth Commandment here today. Let me put this on the screen. Look what he says. When we come across, you shall not murder. He says, how do we understand this? Well, we should fear and love God so that we don't harm or hurt our neighbor in his body. Okay, fair enough, easy to come to it. But help and support him in every physical need. Because see, for God, it's not just enough to do no harm. God is calling us to protect, look out for, or lift up, if you will, the physical well-being of everyone made in his image as well. Ooh, a nasty passage in the Bible comes out of Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to read it to you here today that I think strikes at the heart of this. Jesus is talking about judgment day. And he says on judgment day, he's going to divide up the sheep from the goats. Now, what would you rather be? See, I like goats, but in this situation, you don't want to be that. And he says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will come on his, uh, to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. 
I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. You cared for my physical being. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, the most unimportant of these, the most forgotten of these, the most insignificant of these, the most inconvenient of these, the most, wouldn't they just go away and die of these? Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me because these are people who bear my image. These are people who are children of mine. These are people who are holy and sacred and exist. And you saw that, even if you couldn't articulate that. And you cared for them in their time of need. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And with dumbfounded looks on their faces, they said, Lord, when? And he replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the least of these you did not do for me. Because how we treat other people is how we treat God. What's important to God is how we think not only of him, but of them. This commandment strikes at the heart of the idea that people hurt us. They infuriate us. They believe in things and pursue things that seem counter to our own well-being or the way that we think things ought to be. People hurt us. People hurt others. They infuriate us. Because, man, it'd be easier if they would go away. The anger wells up. We want to get even. We want to lash out. We want to put them in their place. Oh no, we'll couch it in words like justice and all other kinds of sanitized ways of speaking about it, but make no mistake, we want to get them and get them out of the way. There's a release that comes from that. It feels good. Ah, have you ever felt the glory of punching someone in the face? It feels good. 
Have you ever felt the glory of putting someone in their place? It feels good. Have you ever reveled in the light of watching someone get theirs while you get vindicated? There is no more wonderful, freeing, cathartic feeling in this world. But God calls his people to do it differently. He calls them to not release that anger, but to absorb it inside and respect that this person is a child of God who might tick me off and who might even deserve it. But they're in God's hands, not mine. He calls us not to kill them, but in a way to die to ourselves inside. And I'll tell you right now, death is never pleasant. It can even lead you to the place of going, how could anyone even endure that? How do you live in a self-absorbed death to all that, that which is around the only way I know is by God. Because God will come into you and God will change you and God will take that anger away. I don't know how it works. I don't know how to even manipulate it. But I know that God does it. That God says, let me come to you and take that and channel it another way. I've got it. You don't have to put it on them. That's what this whole commandment is getting at. There's a, a Christian author. His name is Stanley Hauerwas. He's a pacifist. I am not. But I think there's something deep and rich we can learn from that tradition. I remember hearing him speak once at a conference, and he said this. If Christians would simply refuse to just stop killing other people, this world would be a far better place. Even in your mind right now, I know that that very statement has invited a thousand exceptions. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? You see the route you're going down? Maybe if we just paused to say, if we as Christians would simply refuse to stop killing other people, here or in here, this world would be a far better place. I'll leave you with that. You wrestle with God with that one on your own. It's all behind this little command, you shall not murder. God's call to be different. So hey, let's, uh, let's stand. Let's pray. And I'll and invite you, if you came in here angry today over something, or better over someone. Bring it to God today. I'm just going to take a moment. I'd like you to visualize that person. I'd like for you to pray him by name. Now you wrestle with God right where you need to wrestle with him. 
in that place, but if my words can help guide you somehow or in some way, well, let them. Lord, we come to you. We come to you as a people who get angry and sometimes even angry for the right reasons. But in our anger, God, we pray that we do not sin. In our anger, God, we pray that you do a self-check on us. Help us to pause, to ask why we are so angry with this person or why we hate them so much. Maybe the reasons are valid. Maybe, God, in this we find a distortion of thinking that somehow and in some way that person exists for me. Lord, I pray you challenge us in our anger. You heal us in our anger. And that even in our anger, we become people who seek and strive for the betterment of other human beings, not the destruction of them. Right now, we put before our mind that person we're angry with, that person we hate, that person for whom we are filled with contempt. Soften our heart, God. Bring us understanding and patience. Help us to forgive even when undeserved. Help us to let go of that which grips us and give it to you. Lord, I know some people in this room have been hurt bad, I mean really bad. And that sometimes the person who hurt them before your law would even forfeit their right to live. But you have said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And so we trust that person to you. I think of the Psalms which cry out, Lord, damn them to hell. And may we be bold enough to bring that prayer before you. But in it, may it also challenge us with the other words you have to say, but Lord, bring them to repentance first. And Lord, where we are guilty of wreaking harm on another, of hurting another, destroying another, pouring upon another a lifetime of dealing with anger, Oh, God, forgive us and help us to see how to make it right. This extreme command, God, it strikes at the core of who we are. Change us, transform us, 
and through us, God, may we be a living witness to others of what forgiveness, kindness, patience, and turning the other cheek is all about. It's tall order, but with you, God, nothing's impossible. We pray. Amen.